This is a Podfire production. This podcast may include explicit themes or swearing and may not be suitable for children. The world is full of amazing people, and once a week, I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum, and this is Awesome Humans. G'day guys, welcome to Awesome Humans. I'm your host, Brett McCallum, and we're here to bring you the biggest, brightest humans we can offer on this amazing planet of ours. Very excited, kicking off the new year. We have a gentleman in the studio that likes to do very, very hot things. My understanding is he does shit with fire that other people can't, and he enhances audience members with his limitless ability to play with fire. I'm really, really intrigued. As you know, I never know who's coming into the studio, and I'm very, very excited to introduce you to Steve. Steve, oh, Steve, Stevie, how do I, what's uh, the best, what do one, you prefer? Well, people call me a whole bunch of different versions of it. Well, I can't. Yeah, as long as it's Someone's one of those, it's one of the nicer versions. Well, um, <laughs> uh, Stevie, Stevie, yeah, Stevie. Let's fine. go with Stevie. So, Stevie, welcome to the studio, mate. How are you? I'm great. Mate, yeah. happy new year. Happy new moment. Mate, it's very yeah. exciting, isn't it? Isn't it just, Can't yeah. be any worse than last year. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how that one unravels. I know, I know. So, <laughs> yeah. Mate, the way I always love starting these is find out, let's go back a long, long time ago. What's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? Oh, my first ever memory. I think that's sort of, uh, that changed a little bit over time, but um <clears throat> I reckon my first clear memory would be my older brother grabbing me from a house that we lived in in Mudrabah and uh, taking me out bush because my parents were throwing stuff at each other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pretty much. It was yeah. like... I kind of didn't really understand what was going on and um, it was getting pretty heated from what I remember. And then um, my brother just scooped me off for a bit of an adventure. Took out for the... To try and get me away from the uh, thing and get my mind off it, which is pretty How cool. old do you reckon you were? It's probably about three or four. Yeah. And closer to sort of three, I think. Yeah, because I, I remember pretty vividly stuff from about four, but just... Yeah. Yeah, because it's... It, it, so you're brought up in a, in a household of, of turmoil or happiness? What sort of household were you brought up? It wasn't particularly like a household of turmoil as such. My parents, when we moved to Australia, um, they just basically broke up pretty soon after we Oh, okay. Where'd you come from? From Holland. Okay. Yeah, I was born in Amsterdam. Really? Yeah. So great place. Great part of the world. Yeah, beautiful part of the world. And my family at the time were living in uh, Newmarks in the centre of Amsterdam and my father um, built a house in Hardy's Road in Mudrabah. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, we moved moved basically from Holland almost directly to the Gold Coast. So were your parents Australian or were... No, my father's Dutch and my mother's Italian. Okay. Yeah. And why did they move to Mudrabah? Well, my mother actually wanted us, I think, to, to move closer to her Italian family that lived in Victoria. Oh, okay. But my father being the solo Dutch man in the family that yeah. sort of realised that he was going to be up against a lot all of the Italians. Italians. <laughs> and also I think he, he figured that if he was going to move all the way to Australia that he'd move somewhere where there's a bit more moderate temperature because yeah. he did know Australia well and he knew, knew Melbourne well and I think that he thought a safe dif- distance from the... Uh, from the Calabrese's, yeah, and um, also closer to you know the beach and the sunshine, sunshine sort of 
beautiful Gold Coast. I guess. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's the dream, isn't it, really, for most people? Well, we live here on a daily like, basis. Yeah, back then it was just like a little surfing town, really. Yeah, a bit different, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So where were you born? What hospital? Um, in the hospital of Amsterdam. Yeah? Yeah, and uh, Newmarks, which is kind of like sort of it's like the centre of Amsterdam, just mm-hmm. outside of the red light district. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what? Um, what? how old were you when you come to Australia? Two. I think it was just just just. So you hadn't two. started school or anything like no, that? No, no, not yet, no. So was that a conscious age to bring you out, do you think, or is it just a decision that was made on the spot? Oh, I'm pretty sure that my mum just, you know, she knew Amsterdam pretty well and she didn't really want my brother and I to grow up there away from her Italian family, you know, mm-hmm. being... I'm very blessed to be half Italian and, and having that in my life is is a really great thing. My Italian family have embraced, you know, family yeah. a lot. Not much as the more Italians do. Family yeah, than really Italian families. That, you know? Italians and Greeks, actually. Yeah. Amazing yeah. at the whole family. Yeah, so that was really good. So she just wanted us to be closer to them and, um, yeah, it was, it was, I'm really glad, actually, in hindsight, that they decided to do it. So you then you came to Australia at two and when did mum and dad break up? How old were you? Around about just before I was four is when they they fully separated Um, and my father continued to live in Madhubai and then my mum moved into sort of Palm Beach area. I think we sort of floated Still on the Goldie though. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And you go with mum? Yeah, I went with mum mostly. We'd see dad every couple of weeks for the week. Every every second weekend we'd go hang out with dad and stuff and... um, yeah, it was, I mean, like, it happened so early for me that it wasn't really uh, a big trauma in just my life. It just became part of life. Yeah, it was just the way I sort of got used to how my family operated. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I felt a lot for people that I meet later on in life, you know, that, <clears throat> that their parents break up when they're sort of, you know, early teenagers or yeah, a bit, a bit old enough to realise what it was. Yeah. So, um, that was so one brother? One one older brother with my mum and dad. Yeah. Um, and he was kind of like my um, – he was my best mate and my partner in crime and everything for most of my – How old? Up, up How much older? He's like two and a half years older than me, uh-huh. Yeah, which is a really good distance, I think, yeah. you know, for, for two young lads to grow up together. Um, and uh, and I've got a younger sister that my mum then can, um, had with, a, yeah. with her new partner and a younger brother that my father had with another okay. as well. So the big family. Yeah, yeah, big sort of uh, spread out, discombobulated. Family. Nothing wrong with that, mate. There's nothing right. wrong with that at all. So what school did you go to? What was your first school? I went to Marymount yep. for about nine, ten years. Oh, okay. So you started prep sort of there and went through to yeah, high school? pretty much, yeah. Went from sort of year one to, to the start of year ten and then I was politely asked to merge into a, um, a different school. <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> politely asked to merge. Yeah, that's the kind of the nicest way I could put it. Um, and then I went to Eleanor State High with, for the final sort of for three, the merge three, for the merge for the merge. Yeah. The merger. That's right. <laughs> yeah, where all the other really good kids went. So, what was what was the straw that that and like made the merge happen? Um, it was was it one incident or, or lots of them? Wow, look, you know, I. Um, I never really sort of adapted very good to the school system in Marymount other than the fact that they had like a state-of-the-art theatre curriculum mm-hmm. and, and I was all about theatre when I was younger, still kind of am. And um, <clears throat> and I just really, I, you know, I dove into the deep end of that. They had, you know, really amazing teachers, really great stages and, and really big productions every year that I could be a part of. Um, and outside of that, I kind of... You know, I hung out with a lot of my brother's mates that were a lot older and I didn't really connect too much. So was he at Marymount as well? He was, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. and he was like a really, you know, he was a, a really good student. You know, mm. he, he sort of, he, he did everything the right way and wasn't really... So were you seen as 
the little brother, that then the teachers go, oh, yeah, you're his brother then. Yeah, I, I definitely embraced being a little bit naughty, I think, at a very young age. But I, I, a big part of that was just kind of enjoying the the life that I had outside of school and then mm. going into school as well as the fact that they did religion every day. And I, I you know, I'm not... I come from a very religious family, but I've never really been forced into practicing it so yep. much. And then I just kind of found myself having very confronting conversations with my religion teacher quite often, which... Um, which is probably common sense, but anyway. Yeah, just because, you know, doing a religion class and then doing a science class directly after it, and just everything just standing itself on their head. And it's like, wait a second here, what am I supposed to... Which one do I believe? Do I ask my science teacher how immaculate conception works? Or, yeah. you know, can you, can you explain that to me a little bit? And, you know, um, just... Just silly things that I, I don't know. I just kind of find it hard to adapt to it. I was also really heavily into skateboarding too at a mm -hmm. pretty young age, and the pulling my socks up and the tucking my shirt in, and the having you? to kind of you know like I really liked growing my hair long, but I could never do it. I always get in trouble, and it's just can't touch the ears, can't touch the collar. Yeah, it's the whole it's a bit, it's just a little bit, a little bit hard for me to yeah, adapt yeah. to. So would you say you were uh, at school a good, bad, ugly, jock, nerd? Where did you fit into the curriculum? Um, I think I was kind of like the um, – I was like the cheeky one that I probably would have been considered maybe that, that kid in the class that if there's a joke to crack to so get everybody to laugh. Yeah, the class clown, definitely, yeah. Um, but I'd also – I really enjoy – um, you know, public speaking. I'd, I'd be the first to get up and do something if this, you know, if if the school or the class needed somebody to to do some sort of thing, yeah. get up in front of everybody. I never had any problem doing that. Um, so, like, I kind of I. I I balanced on this kind of scale of being kind of popular with the teachers because they could they could rely on me to do things that a lot of the other students couldn't, and yeah. then also having everybody having a lot of the teachers have a keen eye on me because if there was a chance that, that someone was going to get in trouble, it, it was normally me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And do you think they picked on you? Um, no, I wouldn't say they picked on me as such. Like, I was pretty good at, you know, getting away with stuff, I guess. You for, know how to play the game. For long enough that they and, – and also I wasn't really one of those really rebellious, angry kind of abusive kids that, mm -hmm. would, that would give teachers shit, like, on, you know, with passion. You still had respect. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also always played the game kind of right, I felt. And, um, and ultimately, in hindsight, it was a bit of a blessing when, when I finally got asked to leave that school and went to Eleanor because, you know, I went from going from pulling my socks up, tucking my shirt in and, you know, having to do religion classes every day to being able to just bomb my skateboard down Avocado <laughs> Street, you know, just with a school shirt on yeah. and my backpack and, you know, go into a really, really relaxed kind of environment. So you can because, be yourself. Yeah, other than the fact that they, they had a very no-frills theatre department. Yeah. So, like... The one thing I couldn't continue, which was the one thing that I was most passionate about learning, um, which made that a little bit tricky, but still, you know, I just found my way through my senior years. And So if we look back now at a 10-year-old at a Stevie, yeah. what did you want to be or do? Um, I definitely always wanted to be a film actor. Was, oh, really? Was From a young age, yeah. yeah. And theatre. Like, I, w one of the first things that I, um, that my mum took us to see, which was really amazing, and I love my mum for this, is a David Bowie concert when I, when I was five years old um, in Brisbane Entertainment Centre. <clears throat> 
And I remember it really vividly when she was taking us there. And I said, Mum, who's, who's this David Bowie character? And she'd say, look, don't worry, son. This will change you are your life. going to thank me when you're older. Yeah. And it was really amazing. It, it was a life-changing experience. Obviously, at five-year-old, it doesn't really take much to have a life-changing yeah, yeah, experience. Of course, but, yeah. but seeing David Bowie was epic. And I remember it really vividly. Um, you know, we got to the we got to the the entertainment center. It was the first time I was in such a massive, big venue yeah, around yeah. such a big audience and stuff. And and as you imagine, David Bowie, you know, the, the show was I would love to completely captivating. You yeah. know, and even as a kid, not even knowing the music that well, I was just on the edge of my seat in absolute awe. You know, um, and I remember this point where it was getting towards the end of the concert. And all of these, you know, beautiful theatrical things are happening on stage and, you know, David's just connected these these beautiful songs all together and it was getting into this crescendoing, into this big finale. And my stepdad decided that we had to leave right at that point. And it was probably in the last sort of 10 minutes of the concert. And we've got to go now because the traffic. We want to beat, beat the traffic. And we're talking about the traffic. We're just it's like, yeah. these guys are God. It's like something, something's going to blow up here. You to go and um and mum's like oh look can we stay and i remember they had like a little bit of a tiff and as they were having a bit of a tiff i just got up and i just went stage left <laughs> and just kind of sort of tried to hide from them so i could see the yeah. end of the show because i was just like i cannot leave you know I can't leave and, and you got, got into a fair bit of trouble with that i remember we got a bit of an earful all the way back from brisbane to the gold coast <laughs> and then it was only a couple of years after that that she brought us to the michael jackson bad concert <clears throat> really so i was um i was seven and a half or something like that and I'd just broken my arm I had my arm in a cast and obviously I was already you know pretty in love with Michael Jackson at that at that point it was like we're talking 80 86 you yeah, know I was just after the bad album so I saw that and then after seeing that it was really hard for anybody to convince me of what my options were in life without actually thinking about what Dave and Michael might have decided to do at a young age. So it was, you know, I got told, you know, you study, you're going to get to university, you can pick an amazing <laughs> But Bowie didn't do that. And I was like, well, I don't know if Michael did that. You know, I'm not too sure if that was on his list of things to do. So I'm just going to hold back and wait until I um, find what it is that I'm supposed to do. And immediately after that, I remember my mum got me into a, um, a community theatre production in Ashmore Road. I forget what the, what the theatre theatre house is it's still there i believe and um it was a christmas carol mm-hmm. and it was a spotlight theatre spotlight theatre that's not that's one. so it was a called a christmas carol and it <clears throat> it was like a contemporary fusion of it so um i played uh marley um scrooge's partner who died in the past and he comes back from the dead yep and he shows him his past present and future Except and how old are you? i was just that was close to 10 mm-hmm. i think close to 10 and then um as part of doing that, I had to learn to sing Thriller. And, like, so I was – I had, like, my own goons behind me doing the Thriller yeah, dance. Yeah, the Thriller dance. Yeah, so when I came back to the dead – came back from the dead, I was like, you know – That's pretty I, I was, cool. You think of all these team of zombies there. Learned how to do the moonwalk. 
And then my life just was like, right. Well, I think the moonwalk changed everyone's soon life. As, didn't I, it? as soon as I could moonwalk my way out of a situation, I was doing <laughs> it everywhere I could. So that was really thing. And then after that, I just realised, you know, this is the sort of thing, and just the feeling I had, and being part of a heightened illusion of reality, and presenting stuff on a theatrical basis to people on stage, and seeing everybody have such a great time. It was just really a space that I knew was naturally a good place for me to be. So you're 10 years old. You're singing Thriller in front of an audience. <laughs> yeah. of Probably three or four hundred people yeah, on a yeah. nightly basis. Yeah, did, yeah, that's a pretty special. It was it was a really amazing thing. Another another thing I really love my mum dearly for. I really wanted to go to an acting college or an acting um, school before. Before I left high school, like yep. all, all up until I sort of just finished primary school and started high school, it was like, oh, can I ever? Unfortunately, you know, I don't really come from a, a very rich back backing. You know, my family mm-hmm. weren't that well off, and it was always very expensive to just, you know, it was, they were paying for me to go to Marymount, so it was understandable. But um, it. it it did leave a bit of a gap in time there for me to just finish my apprenticeship in Naughty, I think. Yeah. And then finally after I left um, I left high school, I got to go. So mum and dad during all this period, uh, do they talk to each other? Or are they – what yeah. was what was that part of your childhood like? That was um, – it was interesting, you know, because my, my father being a brilliant thinker, an amazing Dutch – What did he do? He, he's a um, – an industrial engineer by trade. So, okay. he, but when he came to Australia, um, ultimately it, the the way things work in Holland is a lot different to the yeah, way things course. work yeah. in, in in Australia. It works so much better in Holland. He um, he immediately, as part of the degree that he had, qualified him to be a plumber. So oh, okay. he so he just got straight into starting a plumbing business and was the like the resident sort of plumbing guy for the guy who owned the Wallaby Pub at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and he just went on to create a business called one call fix it all from there and basically like would would have us show show my brother and I how to use tools as soon as we could yeah and um and being the dutch thinking man that he is you know we we were forced to do maths without a calculator when mm-hmm. the schools were letting us do it he actually even contacted the the principal at Marymount and went off him when he found out we had calculators, calculators really, to do yeah. maths with which is really great because he taught me how to sort of build a calculator in my mind and maths has never been an issue for me and mm-hmm. ever since I was very young and you know he he taught us things about how to build things, how to, how to look after your tools, how to use all the tools, yep. what they are all for. Um, he comes from a long line of amazing woodworkers um, and um, and just very disciplined disciplined workers. Emotionally retarded, yeah, but really, really sort of intellectually uh, like through the roof. Um, very, very Dutch very, and stern. Very, and, yeah. very stubborn. Very yeah. smart. And um, <clears throat> unfortunately, he he did like to have a drink on the occasion. I think that. The breakup with him and my mum really broke his heart quite a lot, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's affected him very very much. In his Did he life. ever remarry? No, he didn't. And he you know he had a good go at a few different partners and stuff. Mm. And I just think that you know just never really truly getting over the love that he had for my mum. You know, was just a he's a very passionate lover. I think as well, mm. a bit of a romantic, a super charming guy. Um, but um, yeah, that affected him quite a lot. But still, he was. Did always it affect you? N- well, it has, af- has it affected had, me because has it moulded you to a certain be a certain has. type of man? Absolutely, yeah. Like, there's a lot of things within relationships and stuff that I will not allow 
commu- like a retarded communication to go on. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as somebody starts talking a little bit without considering all of the the, the, the people involved or whatever it is that they're actually saying, I'm, I'm immediate to pull them up. And and I have a I have a fiance at the moment. She's she's like my match, you know. Oh really? And the, and I really feel so good about the fact that I you know I. I I held out and I went through lots of different sort of relationships in my life and I finally found somebody who I can be completely honest with, I can I can share everything in my life with without any question and without any judgment and whatnot and if there's anything that comes up, because ultimately, you know, no one's perfect and everybody needs to adapt to of people's imperfections. Yeah, yeah. You know, what do they say? You know, love and is people not about, change over time. That's right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, like, you know, I, so I exercise that greatly, yeah, which is really great. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, when I when I may be lucky enough to, to start a family with, mm-hmm. with, with my partner, then I'll definitely be able to give my kids what it is that my parents couldn't give me in that respect. And It's funny how you look back now, like you're a bit older and stuff now, and you, and you look back at everything in life and, and the things you went through. And I think one of the interesting things you mentioned earlier was, that, that it wasn't traumatic for you when they broke up because you was younger and that was just the way you lived. Yeah. And to me, that's that's an awesome thing from your parents' point of view as well because a lot of parents stay together just for their kids. That's right. And then it gets all fucked up afterwards. Yeah, and they might not like each other. 100%. So this is one of those things that I um, I actually recently have embraced being a celebrant. Okay. So I just um, – I'm not a legal celebrant as such yeah. but I don't believe that the – the ceremony of matrimony, the ceremony of being married, should be should be involved with the legal legalities behind being married. Because yeah. I think that right. sort of confuses the whole thing. And I, I, I'm really down with exercising the pagan version of what being married is and, and finding a partner and deciding yeah. to, to, you know, make the ultimate promise and to, you know, to, to give them your vows and to renew your vows and stuff yeah. like that. I feel like it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's an age-old, um, like, institution that, that can actually work and um, it can work 100%. really well except like these days we, we have this idea you know there's parents that I, I feel for people even that are in relationships for most of their lives and they never really allow themselves just to understand that they they might not have to be together to actually remain connected and to mm-hmm. be close you know like there's um yeah, I don't know it's, it's, it's a hard one to explain because you get these you get these partnerships that you can sort of tell they kind of don't really spend any time together anymore. They don't really particularly even like each other. Mm, they, they still live under the same roof. They still live roof under the same roof and they're sort of they're just exercising this idea that they're providing their kids with a thing and it's sort of hard to... And the kids yeah. know. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah. Mate, I'm, I'm very, very lucky. I found, like you found, your perfect marriage. I found mine when she was 17. Oh, wow. That's so I've amazing. been married for 25 years next year. That's beautiful. And we've been together 30 years next year. Oh, and we've got four great kids together. And the thing is our whole relationship's been built on brutal honesty. Great. We said on day one, if you don't want to be with me, please tell me. Sure. Because I don't want to go through that trauma. Yeah. yeah it'll be sad and all that stuff. But let's be honest. Yeah. From day one. Yeah. If you don't want to be here, don't be here. I'd rather you not. Yeah, sure. And from that point on, it's just been brutal honesty. Sometimes a bit too brutal, but that's just but that's, that's just relationship. And you get to pass that on to your kids, 100%. you know, and then your kids get to go into life 
meeting people that it might work, might not work or whatever, yeah. but they can always fall back on this idea that actually, you know, mum and dad sort of work this out. If they can sort of see that maybe someone's kind of taking the piss a bit, they can pull them up and say, hey, wait a second, that, this is not how it works 100%. for me. This is not how I know it works. And, and walk away from it instead of maybe going through, like you say, that, that traumatic experience of maybe a breakup taking a year and a half. But there's ups and the downs. Yeah, Mate, there's ups and downs and everything you do. There's all yeah. good times, bad times. There's tears, there's cheers, there's beers. There's all these things that happen yeah. through your life. Yeah. Tell you come out of it. It's That's so what it's true. all about. Yeah, it's, it's, real, it's a real thing. Um, I don't know. Like I've, I've, I've sort of thought about this a lot more recently as well. Just people talking a lot about, you know, the traumas that come up in their elderly life yeah. and it's always related to what happened to them when they were a kid, you know. Yeah. And if I was an only child or if my brother was, you know, five years older than me or I didn't even get an older brother, I got a younger one or whatnot, my experience would have been different. And maybe the trauma of my parents splitting up when I was very young could have affected me a lot more. But in turn what happened was that I got to have like um, my, well, I felt like my brother was like my my immediate guardian, you know. Yeah, yeah. He looked after me, and we we went and we our adventures were always in the bush. Are you, you still know? close? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he's one of my best mates. You know, um, it's it's it took a while because w- what happened is obviously we we started skateboarding at a very young age, <clears throat> yeah. and we were skateboarding when there was one kickers. You know, there was not even the the, the nose on the kickers. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, search for animal chin days, and like we we were all about it. <clears throat> you know, my brother was the was the amazing builder. He'd build the ramps and the stunts, and I was yeah. a stunt man. He'd throw me down the hill and check it, to check him all and stuff, which was really great. The crash test dummy. Yeah, but also we had this other thing where he would, um, him and his older mates and his mates and stuff would go out bush, and we'd just build these cubby houses. Yeah. Um, and they would be like our our headquarters and yeah. our getaway thing. So mm-hmm. like on weekends and whatever, we'd just go out and we'd spend the whole weekend out bush, and that in itself was like. It was it was so much better having an upbringing like that than having having just two parents that got along yeah. that weren't on my level, you know, that might have been able to be there for me, but I just had so many other experiences when I learnt just about all the different sort of types of people there are out there and I wasn't really sort of shielded from anything, yep. which, you know, it's like it's this common thing. They say it's like the Aboriginals, you know, that they've got one of the most complex family systems in the world, but an Aboriginal child, an Australian Indigenous child, will learn to look after themselves, fend for themselves, communicate to all different ages and yep. stuff way younger than any other race on any of other course. sort of um, form of, you know, of human on the planet, which is, um, which is a big sign. It's just like, you know... As soon as you go out into the big, wide, scary world, it's a lot of these, a lot of young fellas that are kind of, you know, like kept from the, the sort of the dark bits. And yeah, the, I agree. Like you don't want to send them overseas because I don't really know about stuff. I, was like, I, I can't imagine what that must be like. I was very blessed to sort of get the school of hard knocks out of you. Oh, 100%, <laughs> mate. No, I, I've got that on actually all of my um, all of my things. What's good to go? I went to the school of hard knocks, yeah. 100%. Like sure. I saw people doing shit they shouldn't have been doing and not that I got involved in it but we were actually we saw it. We, were, we grew up with it yeah. and it was like um, you fall over, you get back up, get up. Like the there's there's no sort of eighth place trophies. There's none of that sort of shit. It's yeah. like you got a grazing in there, get back on your skateboard. That's that's, that's, yeah, that's whereas now, like you, we, we, we see a lot of people come through our business and stuff and the, the millennials and stuff and there's zero common sense. 
Yeah, right. Like mm. you sit there and you tell them to do something, they do it, but that's all they do. They yeah. Do because, oh, no, no, you've got to tell me the next bit and the next bit because that's the way they've been brought up. Yeah. Given everything on a silver plate, mate, it wasn't like that. We're lucky, though. We're, we're really lucky with the generation that, you know, we're, I mean, ultimately it was only maybe another 10, 20 years before me where that generation, once they... Yeah, they stuck on us because they don't get the idea of writing a letter to somebody. No, or that, exactly. Or that idea of, you know, only being able to call from a phone box or, you know, you say to somebody, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing, and it's not until you get back to see that person that they get to know or you need to communicate. With things. <laughs> Just that in itself is like this beautiful thing where you can... You know, this day and age it's hard to be alone. It's hard to actually yes. just be to yourself and or, or go out and, and have an experience where not everybody that you know can actually get to you. No, of course. You know, which is, it's a, and I feel really blessed for that. But it's well. like yeah. when you, you never had a watch, you just knew that when the lights come on, fuck, I'm late, I'm yeah, going to get home. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. As soon as the street it's lights start clicking, you're racing them down the street to get back <laughs> in the doors. It's funny. Yeah. So we go back to school and we're, we're, we're finishing up at Eleanor. So you got your, what was it back then, OPs? Or yeah, it was. yeah, yeah. I Did just, you fail? No, well, look, it was interesting that, <laughs> I failed. I fucked up big time. Well, school. I was um, look. I was really smart cookie at school, but I just kind of was as, just as rebellious. Okay. <clears throat> and I mean, I'd say rebellious, but I think it was more. I never really agreed so much with the education system, the way it was built, the way it was formatted, the, the things that they were spending so much time teaching us over twelve years. I mean, you think about it in twelve years' time. The stuff that you come out of with a senior certificate, you'd be a master of something. Yeah, of course. The sort of things that they don't teach us, like this stuff we've been discussing, mm. you know, like how to how to communicate properly, how mm. you feel, or how to look out for for human beings. How to network. How, yeah, how to just how to how to apply compassion and empathy yeah. when it's needed instead of avoiding it, you know. <clears throat> And these are these are parts of the things that I see. Like, and I consider myself really lucky that I didn't buy into it at a very young age. That mm. I got to see Dave and Michael do their thing yeah. and actually kind of go, actually, wait a second, I'm going to wait and hold out here before I choose what to do. But when I was in high school, I chose to do psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist because I love the mind and I love the way that people think, and um, and just being a part of th- that discussion of talking about it and getting things out and working things out. And I was really into it. The thing was I kind of got a little bit laughed at by my teachers and, and by the academics that I was around due to the fact that I wasn't that type of student that was head in the books, you know, like I, um, I might not have you passed. You didn't fit in the square yeah, of I mean, being a psychologist. I knew what the science was yeah. in science. I just might not have done the study to do the – or maybe Answer not even gone to – or maybe WAG school when the test was on yeah. or something, you know, so, or, you know, assignments that I needed to do. I could have done it if I wanted, if it was something I really chose to do. Then, then look out. You know, you're going mm. to get hit with something that's got some real content to it. But when they get told to read a book that doesn't interest me and then write an essay on it, it's really hard for me to find the time. To oh, hundred percent. So then, in turn, ultimately, what. I got when I left high school. They didn't even want to give me my senior certificate because yeah. my grade at the time hadn't handed all their books in. Oh, okay. And I, could, I remember it was like the day after our our senior prom, which was this epic party, you know. We, we went to <laughs> the Marriott and did something. It was like this dinner, dance thing, all formal. And then we went on this cruise out of surface that went from 12 o'clock to like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. 
and it came back from that and then everybody went to the casino and like you know, it's like my whole grade you know super <laughs> trash and then we and we had to go to school the, the next day like that yeah. morning to get our senior certificates and it was just like another retarded thing <laughs> you're giving us the opportunity to go out and fully celebrate our 12 years of school and you're getting us to come yeah, back yeah. in after our first proper hangover or what should be our first yeah. one um, and I remember going in there and we'd you know pretty trashed and we're sitting there, everyone's a bit emotional, you know, cuddling and tearing yeah. and saying goodbye to everybody and whatnot. And we all sat down and the um, the, the principal at the time, she, he got up and he's just abused the whole year. He was like, I've never experienced a more irresponsible group of people. You know, hardly any of your <laughs> books have come back. You know, um, you know, half of you aren't even here and blah, blah, blah. He just had this whole list of things to complain about. This I'm just like... And I stood up <laughs> in front of my old year, pretty much. So, I love you all. I hope you all have a really great time in life. Good luck out there. Yeah, I'm out. See you all. It's been really great. Really enjoyed, yeah, spending these 12 years with you all. Good luck out there. I'm, I cannot stand here and listen to this guy go no, off exactly, at us yeah. on our last day and I was walking out of the of the room at that time, which is like the PE hall or whatever, and the um, <clears throat> the teacher that was the head of PE at the time, who I always respected, he was a very smart cook, he was a very fit dude and he kind of was, was just as smart. And he pulled me up and he goes, well done, Steve. He's like, you know what? Of all of the people in this world that I say of all, in, in this in this year that might actually make it out there, and you're going to probably be like the you know, you'll end up being a millionaire, or you'll be rich, yeah. and, you'll be rich and famous, or whatever. And I was like, oh, thank God for that. That's really great news. <laughs> Haven't actually become a millionaire yet. And I don't know how famous I am, but uh, you know, always it was still a really. Are you on this buzz. podcast? You're a lot more famous <laughs> yeah. than you were yesterday. It's funny though. I've just recently <laughs> been um, considering maybe going back and studying psychology and doing it now. You know, which is but that's the way it should be. Yeah, like, I'm. Why, now, why you know? do you want a 21 year old psychologist no, or a 21 year old uh, life coach? Yeah, to tell me what have a life, have a, have a life first champ. <laughs> like, go right. and do some shit that yeah. you actually should do. Especially when you're in your prime. I 100%. mean, that's when you should be going around the world and you should be experiencing new places and meeting new people. Oh, mate, and I agree in love a million and, percent. Yeah, you know. We travelled for six months and come back nine and a half years later. Yeah, right, that's right. the sort of shit people should do. That's right. It's just insane. Yeah. So you, you leave school. You've given them your big hurrah. Yeah, I left school and Are I was thinking. Uni or what are we thinking? No, I um, I don't know. I never really thought uni. I I, I wanted to. I still wanted to go to an acting college. So yep. it was still a really big thing for me. But due to the fact that I just finished twelve years of you know school, mm. and and I knew that whatever it was I did choose to do academically or professionally, I would be going back to school as such. I gave myself a year or two of actually not, yep. you know, and. Um, just, just being, just learning just a little go bit. Just get a about job who, who, and be life. Yeah, who I was outside of a school student, you know, which is the first time in life which I got to do that. And ultimately, I didn't really have a lot of money um, either, so it was hard for me just to just to go and get a degree mm. in, in in anything in particular. And my, you know, I didn't even end up getting my senior certificate, which is really interesting. I got it. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't really anything to get me in yeah. good work with as such. Um, and I. Um, yeah, I spent a couple of years just really hanging out with some pretty dark and dangerous people because it was mm -hmm. sort of the most exciting thing that I could find to do. Yeah. Um, I had 
I had re-embraced skateboarding. So there was a point in time there where I sort of stopped skateboarding a bit. Um, and that was when my brother actually stopped skateboarding, which was kind of where we broke up. Yeah. Um, which was a bit of a hard thing for me because, you know, he was like my my partner in crime, my best friend. We, you know, we did everything together. And when he said to me, look, I was like, let's go skateboarding. I was going to hit the bowl. And he's like, no, I can't. I've... Just about to start this apprenticeship and my hands are more important than anything else. What are you talking about? It's more important than skateboarding. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, you know, and he had a vision, you know. He he knew that he didn't want to be – he didn't want to live a life like he saw my mum and dad live where they yep. constantly had to move from place to place trying to keep up with mortgage payments and trying to keep up with this credit system, this, this sort of never-ending snake eating its own tail. It's like really hard for people to find their head yeah, above water and that thing. Um, so he just – you know, he had a vision and it was just to to nail it by the time he was 40. Mm. So he didn't have to push it uphill, you know, for his whole life. And his family could enjoy the benefits of not of being able to choose what he wanted yeah, and what they wanted, which is an amazing thing. And he's done that. He's, he's actually one of the most successful people I know. Mm-hmm. What's he do? He, um, he actually owns the Solar Heart franchise for the whole East Coast. Oh, yeah. there you go. Yeah, so he, he started his apprenticeship in Solar Heart as yeah. being my father's Apprentice, he, my father was the main installation guy. Yep. Within a year and a half, I think my father lost his job, and my brother got his job and rehired my father, <laughs> still as my father's apprentice. Wow. Um, and then just went on to slowly climbing his way up within that within that business to now you know, branching it out and owning, you know, owning that. And he's got, you know, he's got all these other sort of side things that he does with solar and with all these other stuff. Like it's, it's epic. And and now he's got the time to actually come out and spend a lot of time with me out on the property that I live on out in Crumman Valley, helping rebuild all these beautiful old, restoring all these beautiful old places and, yeah. and recreating this permaculture project out there. And it's like he's, he, he can do, you know, he has his little meeting in the morning on his on his computer, yeah. you know, in his car with the air con on and just has to have a meeting with all of his employees. He's got like, you know, 30-something employees. Good he employs everybody. He's employed my whole family basically yeah, yeah. other than me. Um, that's why we're still friends. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, he's, yeah, he's great. And now he's really jumping on board with all of the new different sort of things that he can do and experience with his son and with me, and which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. So you boys broke up, let's, let's call it that, when he, when he couldn't um, skateboard anymore. And you so you've gone pretty much, fuck you, I'm going to go down this angle. Yeah. And you went dark. How dark did you get? Well, uh, pretty Pretty reasonably dark. Like I so we're talking I, drugs and drugs, bikies, bloody dangerous people. Yeah. You know, um, uh, just embracing every opportunity just to just to do what a lot of other people would look at as the wrong thing. But it just it it kept me in an environment that kept me really interested because everything else outside of that environment I saw as just like this soul-sucking crock of shit that just um, promoted people's unhappiness eventually, you know. So it wasn't a fuck you to society. It was more a, actually I'm really intrigued. Yeah, I just hadn't found the thing that I really wanted to do. So until I'd found that, until yeah. I had the opportunity to do... So was this a stopgap between now and when you wanted to be actively acting? No. Or did that go out the window? How it sort of worked out was I had like probably... A year and a half of really going sort of downhill at a very rapid rate. And, you know, um, it got to a point where I knew that um, I... 
I was either going to end up in jail or dead mm-hmm. or something worse, you know. Um, and I went back to my mum. So I moved back. I moved out of ha- home as soon as I could. I was, I think it was like 15, just, just after 15. And, um, <clears throat> and I lived with my brother who had already moved out of home and he had this beautiful place in Burley. And, and I lived there, had a peppermint Gemini. It was the first car I got. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like free. I got and then, go from, on, then from then go it, was on. Like, it was literally all downhill. Yeah. Um, but I... I eventually left my brother's and then got my own place, which I was living because of a really good friend of mine, um, this uh, Isaac Joseph Lewis Martin, um, this Jamaican kid. Um, we used to we used to just you know, have a really great time together listening to reggae and, and I was into graffiti, a fair bit of graffiti and stuff like that and I was like, I didn't like the whole tagging reality. I just really loved this thought of being able to find a blank wall somewhere and have like a whole bunch of colours and go there in the middle of the night and paint a big beautiful mural, you know. And, it was that. And not- he was like my lookout guy, you know, and it was just really exciting. Back at the time I didn't really do a lot of it but that was one of the things. But he was a bit of a pushover, real sweetheart of a kid and these... Um, these heavy guys um, started moving into his apartment that he had. And I was um, probably not as much of a pushover in those days and I kind of, I sort of went in there and sort of like kicked all these guys. I was like, you know, you can't even, they were doing some nasty shit in, in his house and stuff and he couldn't really tell them to leave even though he wanted them to. So I I decided to move in there and sort of clean clean the place out yeah. of all these guys. But in turn, I ended up sort of building a little bit of a relationship with some of the more heavier guys of those guys and started tattooing and tattooed a skull to my chest on my own, <laughs> which was stupid. And then, you know, like I had, um, had another really good mate of mine at that time too who had just moved in with my my father because my father rented out his house to people you mm-hmm. know and this guy came up from sydney his name was joe pierce he's an amazing dude and he sort of taught me a little bit more about how to be really smart about the things that i was doing yeah um and i i, I remember just things like you know we'd go to we'd go to the casino or something like that and he sort of show me how people lose a lot of money and how not to lose a lot of money, which is really interesting because there's not really that many ways to yeah. not lose a lot of money in a casino. But things like how to talk to girls and how to pick up the right ones and, you know, how to what not to do and, and stuff like that. But ultimately Life lessons, pretty what much. he did for me was he really shed some light on what avenue I was going in <clears throat> and where I was going to end up. And it was it was a beautiful thing because I respected him a lot, and he made it very clear to me what my um, what, what the outcomes were going to be. And it was at that point that I realised I just I really need to just go back to my to my mother's place and just live there because she also is you know was starting to really see in me this deterioration, this this mm. this light kind of turning a little bit dark, and she ultimately just never really confronted me about too much stuff but she just provided me with a really like with with home again and I lived in surface paradise and she found this um this course it was like a silver service um kind of hospitality course Mm -hmm. to do at the spit so I just sort of um what happened I I lost my license for like 27 months so as soon as I kind of got my license yeah it was really shit the way it worked out well, it was right when they had that um, that big thing that's, you know, that mates don't let other mates drink drive oh, campaign. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and I was just, I was at the Shark Bar in Burley mm-hmm. with my mate Joe Pierce and we were there having a couple of games of pool and we played this, these, um, these lads and won a round of beer. And I hadn't been drinking, but I had one beer just a skewy or whatever, and I lived literally just across the road, just in the, in the Burley kind of suburbs mm-hmm. there. 
and I jumped in my peppermint Gemini and I drove to go drop my car off back home because I knew I didn't want to be driving drinking yep. and went back to the pub to play pool. As I was driving out of the shark bar, these cops pulled me up, right? And they were like, oh, you've been drinking? I was like, yeah, look, I just had a beer, but I'm just going to drop my car off home because I want to keep drinking, whatever. So they breathalyzed me and I was point zero zero two two. Yeah, and at that time they had the law that if you were anything above point zero 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 two, yeah, then you get, yeah, you, know, you, you get your ass reams pretty much. So I lost my license for three months there, and then it was only just a few days before I was getting that license back then that um, I had this big blue with my dad because I drank some coke in the fridge, and it was one of his flatmates. He's like, "You got to go to the server and get some more." And it was in the middle of the night, so. I'd, Drove to the servo and just just drove through an amber light and just turned red as I was putting my seatbelt on and turned to the right and there's some cops at the lights there. I was like, fuck, pulled into the service station to sort of like get some fuel. They've pulled in behind me and they're like, oh, wait, you realise you just yeah, ran a red light. It's like, oh, it was amber, really sort of like, give us your licence. I was like, well, funny that because I kind of just about to get it oh, back. Oh, no. And then they said to me, and the, oh, it fucks me how it, how it happened because I didn't have my car, I didn't drive my car for three months. It had just been like five or six days out of oh, registration. So everything. So they were just like, oh, mate, yeah, this is not going to look good for you. I thought, I was thinking, look, this is this is fine. I'll just tell a judge on the situation. It'll be all right. You know, I'm like another three, six months or whatever. Didn't get any representation. Went to court, put a nice suit on, thinking yeah. I'm just going to be a lawyer because like, that's likely I could do that. Mm. And I learned very quickly that that wasn't a smart idea. <laughs> the judge turned around and he's just like, mate, you're nah, 27 months and $1,000. I was like, but, but what? Twenty-seven months. Yeah, that was time. when I became a pro skateboarder. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I had to skate everywhere, you know. So it was just a thing, you know. Like <laughs> after after that twenty-seven months, I was really good at skateboarding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So during this time, you were in the dark, dark pages or yep. dark ages. Yep. Did you ever like think of topping yourself, or did you ever think no. of no, 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 you'd love life too much? Mm. Did you ever think you'd get in the shit? Well, I could never even consider that one my mother's alive. Okay, that's yeah, interesting. That's just definitely not something that I would Because you wouldn't expect. put her through that trauma? No way, yeah. No, that's just the most, that's the biggest cop out <clears throat> for me personally. I mean, yeah, I know no, also a lot of other people. That's not, you know, that's not other people. That's not judgmental. That's no, just the way that I always looked at it. And nothing was ever really that bad for me. Yeah. It was just more so people's uh, perception of, how bad things were for me. And, like, I was just basically holding space for myself before the right thing came up for me to do because I just saw, I don't know, I just saw a lot of elder people in my life that weren't happy, that had made these choices that they thought they were supposed to make and it just never really sold it to me, you know, like it was... So what was the what was the light switch or what was the switch that got you out of that dark shit and then said, nah, fuck it, let's it go was, this way? It was this it was this point where I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with these heavy guys anymore. Mm. And um Is that because you were scared or because no, you just saw some just, shit yeah, you didn't like? Because my good friend Joe pointed out to me what ends up happening when you involve yourself with a circle of people like that. Yep. He came from King's Cross in Sydney, you know, and um, I do believe one of his cousins um, or, yeah, he's one of his eldest cousins owned a tattoo shop in, in, in the cross. Mm-hmm. So he knew a lot about that type of human or just where that angle goes, like where, where that road ends yeah. up. And he, and when I contacted these guys and they, they wanted to come over and try and, you know, 
I don't know, try and sort of pull me back into doing some doing some naughty stuff with them mm. or whatever. And I said, look, well, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, like I'm, it's hard to I'm get not out. doing this sort of stuff anymore. They were like, no, no, that's not how things work. Yeah. And they were like, are you home? And I was like, look, I'm at, I'm at home. They're like, well, we're coming over. And it was like, right, okay, cool. It's better now than never because yep. if I don't do this now, it's never going to happen. And Joe stayed with me, um, who I never realised had these contacts or references to people or whatever. And these, these guys rocked in pretty hot-headed and ready to sort of have a pretty serious confrontation with me and they saw Joe sitting in the room and they're like, who's this guy, you know? And, um, and he's like, I'm Joe, um, cousins of blah, blah, blah. Men dropped some names of some people that I didn't even know who he was yeah. talking about. And they but were they like, did. straight on their back foot were like, okay, well, nice to meet you, mate. And uh, you were just popping in to say hi and all good. <laughs> like things just unraveled a lot differently to what I was expecting yeah, yeah. and how it had worked out for other people that wanted to jump out of that circle. And um, it was after that that Joe packed his shit up and left the coast. And we were like best mates at the time. He was a lot older than I was, but we just sort of got along. We sort of saw things really similar, yeah. except he saw me go down this avenue. He's like, no. Nah. Like, and he held me out of that thing and then he just disappeared. I've never actually heard from him ever since since those days, but it was at that point it was like, right, I need to, like, what was it that I wanted to do in life? I was like, that's right. I wanted to be in film and theatre and I really loved being on stage and that was one of the biggest things that I was doing in my life at that point. And, um, so how old were you at this age, reckon? I was probably about 17, yeah. 17, getting close to 18. And yep. I was like, this is, um, you know, this is, this is not going to work out. So I went back, did this, um, did this uh, silver service waiter thing, was back in a classroom environment, nailed it. It was really great, got really good at it, learned about being a barman and just being able to serve royalty if I needed to and whatnot. <laughs> which was cool. And I got a job at Movie World <clears throat> from from that. And then I was working in the Dirty Harry bar at Movie World. And I remember this, um, one of the characters, it was a, Beetlejuice comes into the back of the, the Dirty Harry bar. I'm serving like, you know, nachoses and shit people. Yeah. It's, a, it's a shit kicker job um, to potentially be, do a bar uh, sort of traineeship as a barman. And um, Beetlejuice comes running in the back. He's like, right, right just pour us a whiskey, can you? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm a little whiskey. So I'm a quick shot. He's like, cheers, mate. Goes back out and continues his work. I was like, oh, right. And then I went to the, the, <laughs> the eatery where, you know, all the staff eat. And the staff that weren't the performers or actors got to eat from a certain buffet. <laughs> the staff really? that, and the, and the, um, the workers that were the um, role players. Got the better one. They got all this other food. This nicer food or whatever it was. And they sort of got easier treatment. And they, you know, it was kind of like. Oh, it's kind of like, like a class it's kind thing. It's like being in the here. military working yeah, for yeah. Warner Brothers. Like it's ridiculous how they, what it's like out there. But I was just straight up like, what am I doing even looking at being a bum? And that's what I was doing. And that's I what I was really good at. You know, yeah. well, you know, I need to be. Um, um, I need to be a thespian again. You know, I need to get yeah, back yeah. into, back into the, that that art of theatre and the theatre arts and stuff. And um, it was at the point my mum also then she found this um, this course which was on Ashmore Road again. Um, it was at the film Australian Film and Television Academy. Yeah. It was just this academy that just started up on the on the coast, and the the you know, second or third year running. And I went in there and and saw them. It was quite expensive. I was basically spending my entire dole payment and stuff on being there for the first like month or two, and then it got to a point where I was not making enough money to continue paying for that and to look after myself. And I got and I I had to leave it. Mm. I was doing really well though. It was like I was kicking it and. Um, 
you know, I was getting behind on payments and I said to, I said to Jane, the lady that ran, ran it at the time, I was like, look, I, I can't actually do this anymore. She was like, oh, no, you can't, you can't leave. You're doing so well. You're like our star student, you know. I was like, no, I just, I can't, I can't afford it. And she's like, well, we've got two scholarships happening in the country at the moment because they had academies in Melbourne, in Brisbane, and I think one in Perth or something. And it was for one male and one female uh, sponsored by Nutrimedics that paid for the entire two-year degree. Yeah. And they um, put me up for the, the male. So they basically just gave me a scholarship. For and you won it. Yeah. Yeah. So I stayed. Well so, yeah, so then I stayed and I finished and, and kicked that degree in the dick. It was really, really great. Like, and I was back in this environment of the thing, the craft that I was doing. I was getting really healthy. So you felt at home. Feet. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it was like I finally actually got to go to that acting school yeah. that I always really wanted to be going to, but I just had to have that bit of a gap yeah. time. Where, Sometimes you've you got to have a bit of a space. Yeah, that's right. Skateboarding and martial arts and, you know, like doing crazy stuff with, um, you know, crazy people sort of predominantly was the most interesting mm. thing for me to do until that opportunity arised. And then from there it was like it was all on pretty much. Like uh, my life just started, you know, flowering in the, in, the, in the academic and professional way that I felt comfortable with myself and felt really good about what I was doing and was, you know, excited about getting yeah. into stuff. And it wasn't until I, scholar, like I graduated sorry, from, from that degree <clears throat> and I was given a, um, a really amazing agent in Brisbane. Um, she was like one of the best agents that you could get around and because I sort of passed with such flying colours and I had like a really great showreel and like really great response from all my teachers and people who ran the, ran the um, academy, she was putting me up for big roles straight away, <clears throat> which was really quite exciting, you know, at the time and I was going in for these big roles and it was kind of hard and I, she, she gave me the word up, you know, you're probably not going to get these but we'll get you some experience and get you out there a bit because a lot of these big film companies go for actors that they can see have had experience in the yep. industry and I hadn't actually just had any experience in the industry. So I kept getting callbacks for a lot of these big roles and things and I never actually got the thing mm -hmm. and it took ages and it kind of was a bit of a disheartening process for me. Destroys you. Yeah. Well, it's, the, it's the no, yeah. no, you're not good enough. And and also I was going into these audition spaces where, you know, like I'd have to go for the, be a role that is like some real heavy, gnarly, bikey style kind of guy. And I'm like, oh, I've got this. You know, I know what these yeah. guys are like. And I went in there, yeah, really focused, you know, because I had this ability to learn scripts really fast. I could learn a whole script really mm -hmm. quick and I don't need to have it in my hand and stuff and I could adapt, you know, characters and things. like a, comes naturally to me. Um, but I go into the audition room and I see these people next to me and then really don't look like they come from the school that I come yeah, from yeah, as yeah. such and, you know, like very sort of, I don't know, kind of strange style humans that I didn't really, like, I couldn't relate to at all. And they and the casting agent would come out and they'd see them and be like, "Oh, John, how are you?" And John would be like, "Oh, I'm so good. It's so good to see you. Oh my God, how have you been since that last production?" And it's like, "Oh my God, I'm so good. Oh, so great. So good to see you. Come, come in. You're looking great." And I'd just be like, "Oh fuck, this is really not the room I'm supposed to be." No. In. You know, they kind of have one look at me. They'll be like, "Oh, okay, right. You can come in here and do it." And I'm just like, "Oh fuck, I've already <laughs> feel like I'm not really yeah, exactly, going to get yeah. this gig." So it really was hard. But one of the good things that came out of that was I got a job working for the Australian Intelligence Training Centre for the Australian Defence Force, mm -hmm. um, which is in uh, Kukota Barracks in Canungra. Yep. 
And so anybody in the Australian um, military, uh, the Army, the Air Force or the Navy, and also New Zealand, if they want to be part of the intelligence wing of that force, they have to go through this training scenario, which is in which is in Kokoda Barracks. And for the first time, they, they came to the guys that ran that, so the, the intelligence officers that ran that course, came to our graduation at Movie World to see all the showreels and all of the people that were coming out of these acting sort of yep. um, degrees and stuff. And um, I got picked. There was a handful of people that got picked on the coast to go and try this um, this program where they were using civilians for for the past prior to that they were using military to okay. to to um, put into interview rooms that were kind of conducting um, interviews in order to be able to find out when people are lying using body language and all these big scenarios. But military are pretty shit actors apparently, right? So <laughs> um, you know they get they decided to start using proper players and proper thespians, so trained actors that could that could adapt to certain sort of body scenarios language things and. and stuff. And not really sort of look like they're trying to, mm. to give off body language but just do it naturally and stuff. So they tried it out on like three or four of us um, and the initial first program was like three months or something and we helped write the scenarios and stuff and the Major General or whatever for the Australian Intelligence Wing that came up from Canberra, who was up in arms when he heard that they were using civilians <laughs> for military yeah, yeah, training, training exercises. And he sat in our he sat he sat in our interviews for like two days, and he sat in most of mine. And he came out of my ones and had to go back through all my records, and he wanted to see proof that I had not been in the military for four years. Oh, really? Because he just didn't believe that I hadn't been in the military. Yeah. Like that nobody could have. Was, so that nailed it, and they. So they got to continue doing that program. Then after that, I stayed working for them for like five or six years or something, oh, wow. doing all of this. And that was the sort of environment for the being for so the, a different type of acting, not yeah, something that you normally see. Type about. of thing that I was eating up. You know, it was yeah. actually real time, proper improvisation. You just get, you know, you'd get a booklet of information about what your character is, what's happened in this certain scenario, what your job is and what your involvement is of it um, and how to react when you ask certain questions or whatnot. It wasn't a script as such, which is beautiful. Yeah. You know? So you, could so you have to you know, go in with all of the proper uniform on, cut shaven, yeah. you know, and like with all of the salutes and all of that jazz. And and I was working with, you know, some of the most intelligent people that, you know, that, that I have such a vast respect for the intelligence wing, the Australian yeah. military intelligence wing. They're just so second to none. They are exactly what they say they are. <laughs> Intelligent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so that was good. I mean, and that was one of the elements that I've got to take out of that course that really kept me going because the acting industry just didn't sell it for me and it was like, I don't think I can do that, mm. um, which helped a lot. Um, so that was all up prior to me going back overseas. I, I did that. And um, there was a few other really close calls that I had. Like I, I got the nickname Steve Extremo from this job that um, it was called the coolest job in the world competition. Oh yeah, that's the guy that got stung in the eye with an irukandji. Oh, you know that? No, what the guy that? that won it, right? Pommy guy. Was this the one? It was ESPN to host the extreme games all around the world. Oh no, this is another one where the guy got a job on Hamilton Island. Right, <laughs> it was the coolest job in the world. There's their big advertising campaign, and then the bloke got stung by an irukandji whilst he was on the job. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's hilarious. So what was the coolest job in the world? Was going around the world hosting ESPN. Yeah, yeah. You worked oh, for Australian wow. ESPN, and you hosted every extreme games all around the world, oh, and it was presented sick. on Australian and New Zealand ESPN. Right, so. 
Amazing job. For mm. me, you know, coming from, as a from a skater, full scholarship and this thing, had all the experience, all the things, I knew how to do that job. It was basically like a job made for me. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I had my friends at the time, I didn't even know that this competition was happening, my friends that were making skateboard films and Lee Kelly, I think, yeah, yeah. Had, had something to do with that as well. Um, it, they, um, they pulled me up. They were like, look, you, this is your job. You need to go so for this. And they had it. like a cattle call audition thing all around. Yeah. the country so there's like 10,000 applicants from New Zealand and and Australia where they traveled from big cities and they did these huge big cattle call yeah. auditions I knew what they were like and I avoided doing that and I sent in a short film that was like incorporating all of my show reels this is a really funny film where it's sort of my voiceover as my mum comes in and wakes me up I'm asleep on the couch and she's like Stephen get up get yourself a job you lazy little <laughs> bastard <laughs> She's walking around. I'm like, yeah, okay, mum, I turn the television on and then this thing comes up and says, you know, I'm like, oh, get a job. What am I going to do? And one of my show reels was being a lawyer in Bond Uni or whatever and uh-huh. I like, maybe I could be a lawyer and then it goes into, the, you know, me dreaming off being this thing and I was like, nah, I look shit in a suit and I was like, oh, maybe I could be, a, you know, a radio presenter and then it goes into like me at sort of Gold Coast FM or wherever it was and in surface doing this little quick spiel like I'm behind. I was like, nah, nah I'm really probably going to be shit at that. And I was like, maybe I should just rob a store. <laughs> and it goes into me being like a punk that holds up a store with a water pistol. Yeah. And the guy behind the counter goes, that's a water pistol, buddy. You're not getting anything. I ended up buying a pack of cigarettes and leaving. And then I was like, oh, I can't do any of those. And then this voiceover comes on the television says, wait, are you sitting on your ass? Are you looking for a job? Well, maybe you'd be able to do this ESPN. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And. And then it goes into me, you know, my skateboarding part and then me presenting myself to ESPN saying, G'day, ESPN, I'm Steve Alex Dreamo and basically you've found me. Yeah. You know, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Pack up this system. Welcome. Yeah, it's all good. I'm here, just, just me signing on, yeah. waiting to hear back from you. And within like two weeks of sending that off, I got a call from the ESPN office in China and the guy, one of the major guys that was running the whole thing, he's like, look, I'm not supposed to do this, but <laughs> we've been watching you. We've watched your video about five or six times. It's pretty good. Um, it's looking good for you. Um, there's going to be a eight-month process where we're going to interview, you know, we're going to go from 50 people down to 10 people down to yeah. five people down to the person who gets the job. You'll be going through all of that. We're going to have you on television. There's going to be further interviews, rah, rah, but I can't really say you're going to get the job, but I can say it's looking pretty good. Yeah, you, you can kick back and just so here I am just I've going. I've got this. Yeah, baby. You're joking, right? <laughs> so I've told all my friends, you know, that have helped me make the video. They all put in so much effort. This yeah. Like a proper produced, edited film, short film. It only went for like two minutes or something like that. It's like, a, like a, they said that I've probably pretty much got it. You know? So I explained to them what happened. It was hard for me not to get excited, you know, and like that was where I got this, this nickname, Steve Extremo which I kind of didn't really like for many years. But it turned out after the, the final, so that it came down to the final five people and the day before they sent up the film crew to interview me in Pizzy Bowl, mm-hmm. you know, with this final thing of like, you know, what, you know, what do you want to do with this job? I went skateboarding with some good friends the night before and I did something stupid with my skateboard and I kicked my skateboard up into my hands like, you know, Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future. Yeah. And the things come flipping up and it hit me in the eye or hit me in the face. My skateboard hit me in the face and it's given me this slight shiner, right? Oh, no. And it was at that point which I didn't realise too much about 
TV makeup and screen makeup and all of that stuff. And I just went into this thing without any prep, without any, any prep and got straight on these TV cameras. They did this interview and it was like, I was thinking, yeah, that's cool look, you know, I just gave myself a black eye skateboarding. I'm extreme as it's all good. Mm. I got this, you know, like, oh, by the way, I won't do that while we're doing the thing. But it turned out that that was the catalyst where I didn't get the job. And the guy who did get the job was um, James, the, this, this guy that ended up working with Channel V. Oh, really? And, and then he ended up being you one of the hosts of career? Australia's Got Talent. Uh, you know those two no. guys from yeah, Channel yeah. V, the long blonde dude and yeah. the short brown He's haired now dude? Osher. Right, so that short brown haired guy was the guy who got the gig. Really? He couldn't stand on a skateboard and talk in a microphone at the same time. He, uh. There was all these takes from all around the country. He just fucked it up so bad. And it broke my heart and I lost complete like trust or faith in the film and television industry entirely. It just had, had it chewed my soul up and spat it in my face and just went, no, you're not going to, oh, this no. is not your big break. And that was going to be the thing for me. So like I kind of, I just put it, I put that passion down yep. and just kept moving forward. Um, <clears throat> it was at that point too where, you know, I'd been getting, I started getting into fire stuff a little bit more and, um, and I just wanted to travel. I just wanted to go back. A really good brother of mine that I was skateboarding a lot with, Timmy Burdett, he was, um, he'd just gone through cancer. He, he was, he had a few different forms of it, um, had gone through chemo, lost all his hair, lost all his weight, lost a ball, lost one of his testicles and didn't really have a big family looking out for him. And I ended up moving into a place with him and looking after him and helping him get through it. And we booked tickets to Amsterdam straight away. And um, by the time we were leaving to fly back and fly to Amsterdam, so I was going to go reconnect with all my family yeah. over there. I brought my whole kit of fire stuff and our skateboards and stuff and didn't have a cent to our name um, and just took off. And that was when, that was kind of when my fire career kind of really started kicking off. A Why fire? Um, I studied um, a few different forms of martial arts when mm -hmm. I was younger. Now, I really loved it. I got into it quite a lot, a lot of weaponry stuff. Yeah. Um, but... Not having a violent bone in my body, really. I could never <laughs> sort of put it to the test. It was more the movement. Yeah, it was, it was the movement, the power of body and mind and just the discipline of actually understanding how to um, generate certain power. Like I was never a big guy, mm -hmm. but I could harness, you know, certain movement um, and create power with my body and um, that's one of the beautiful things of martial arts, you know, that it teaches you. Um, I did a lot of different forms. So there's uh, one that I did with Vince Perry just as... I was finishing high school called a Mokdaju, which is like a mathematics of everything kind of mm -hmm. thing. And he, he would teach us like the, the dynamic principles of kickboxing, the dynamic principles of Jeet Kune Do, the one that Bruce Lee created, yep. other types of Vempihem, Kung Fu, um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, all of this different stuff is all part of the same school. And I learned quite a lot about, you know, I was really super fit at the time. I was doing really, really great with all this weaponry stuff. But then sort of came out of that when I was like, I had the opportunity to jump in the ring. It was like, I don't want to do that. Mm. And then it was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to test these things on anybody because oh, it's going to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back to skateboarding because skateboarding is the ultimate martial art in my mm -hmm. in my experience. You know, you're, it's, it's you against your skateboarder and yep. it's you and your skateboard against the world, you know, and the only person who ever gets beaten is you. Mm. <laughs> or, or you or you roll away feeling like, you know, the karate kid or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I went back into skateboarding quite quite immensely after that and and 
really, really going there with it, loving it, like just, just going next level with it, um, street skating and skating big bowls and pools and stuff. And I started, I found the right people to skate with and stuff. And then um, I remember it was like, I think it was uh, 18, 19, I got a job at the casino. It was the last actual place that I've ever worked for, I think, outside of just being, a, you know, um, subcontracted. Um, and I, um, yeah, I just, I found like this party, friends of mine that I met at, at the casino, they took me to this doof, right? It was the first time I'd ever, I was in punk bands and I was really mm -hmm. into the punk scene when I was in that sort of skateboarding, bohy craziness after yeah, school yeah. and stuff. Like I just had this amazing group of friends and they were all just debaucherous punks, you know, like they just, they loved it and had the right attitude. It was my good mates. But I went to this doof where there's this, this environment where there's this beautiful, you know, dance music and it's just like these sort of hippies and everyone's just really nice to each other. There was no pretense. It was like this, everyone's sort of like cuddling each other and having a really good time and it was just like, this is amazing. It's really beautiful music and it's great vibe. And there was a, there was a girl there, Ellie Bird, and she was playing with a fire stick. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Look at this chick with the fire yeah. stick. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And waited for her to finish and then, you know, went up to ask her if I could please have a go of a stick. And she's like, yeah, it's fine, no worries. And I had to, remember I had a cigarette butt at the time and I flicked my cigarette butt on the ground and she's like, bugger you, you're not having a go on my stick, mate. You're flicking cigarette butts out here around it. It was like the first time that I was like, Oh, actually, yeah, that was probably a pretty shit thing to do, yeah. wasn't it? Just do that. I was like, I'm really sorry. I'll never do that again. <laughs> She's like, okay, you can have a go. And then I had a go with this fire stick and I really loved it. But by the end of that burn, there was like, oh, I had 10, 10 or 15 people sitting there. They yeah. were like, oh, yeah, do it again, do it again. You know, I was like, oh, that's weird. And so, you know, got into it from there and like found this really beautiful place where I could exercise all of that martial art information that I learned with weaponry, but do it with weapons that were actually just set on fire to make them look pretty instead yeah. of Somebody getting swung people. at someone's head to be yeah, a yeah. dangerous thing. So um, I sort of learnt that I could apply all of this knowledge that I'd already learnt um, to this beautiful equipment and entertain people and people would really get the most so of it. So you getting, getting the best of all worlds. Yeah, then. and it was right at that time when the burly drumming thing started mm -hmm. with the Three Worlds mob and, um, and, and I'd go down there every weekend with all of my equipment and started learning about doing more than one stick at once and then it's chains and ropes and juggling machetes and doing all this other crazy stuff. And, and there was a group of people that, um, there was this one guy actually came up to me, he's like, mate, beautiful performance, love your stuff. He's like, see that girl over there? I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm going to ask her to marry me. If she says yes, I'd really love it if you could come and do a show at our wedding. I was like, oh, I'd love to. It'd be my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, champion. He's like, yeah. he's like oh, and five minutes later, he comes over with his missus. Yeah. Right? They're all super happy, bouncing like gazelles, and they're like, she said yes. I was like, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm really looking for I was like, just let me know the information. I'll come along and I'll do it for us. And they're like, great, how much do you charge? And it's like, oh, well, blah, 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 blah. what? Like, I mean, <laughs> I'll be happy to do it. Like, you don't have to pay me. They're like, no, 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 we've got money allocated for entertainment and so you're going to come entertain us. Like, and all of a sudden the light bulb went ding. I was like, okay, this is something that I can actually do for yeah. a living. And that I right. enjoy. That I enjoy. Yeah. So it was that thing that I was waiting for. It sort of came up and sort of reared its ugly head. It was like, yeah, you can't not do this. So then I went down the line of um, starting a fire entertainment business, which was really cool. And that was just prior to my 20s, 20, 21 or something, sort of like evolved into that. 
and then it was like being in an administrative kind of position of having to do the paperwork of running a business and all that yeah. other stuff and then getting the gigs and it was kind of just didn't I didn't really gel with that side of it. I was really good at creating the shows and getting like the crew and the cast and making those things like when we got the gig of making the gig amazing but getting the gigs was a lot of this other sort of hurdle was hard for yeah. me to adapt to. So it sort of like it sort of worked. I think I did the niece scheme or whatever and I sort of created this um, business called Liquid Fusion Fire Productions, which I did with three other really good friends of mine, including Ellie Bird, the girl who gave me the stick for the first time. And and we got some really great gigs and we did some really cool stuff, but it wasn't really a super big moneymaker and mm-hmm. it didn't really sort of kick as much as I would have loved it to. But... Um, but it helped me to develop a bit more of a concept of that option as a form of employment. Um, and I just decided when we went to Amsterdam, Timmy and I, um, to bring all my fire equipment just to see if I could get maybe corporate gigs over there mm-hmm. and whatnot, which was kind of like always looking like a slim chance because even in the country that I could communicate with everybody and I know yeah, how it yeah. works is already hard, let alone going 100%. in the middle of Holland and stuff. But um yeah, it was just lucky that I went with Timmy at that time because we, you know, we hit Amsterdam with no money, had um, <clears throat> had our skateboards, pretty good yeah. attitudes, and and we're living in the in the Flying Pig Hostel, just in the centre of Amsterdam, and um, it was right on Vondel Park. So we'd just leave the hostel and we'd go out into the park at nights and just hang out with all these really cool crew. I'd pull out all my fire equipment. We'd have these big groups of people that would come down, you know, a couple of people with some drums and stuff or whatever. And it wasn't until Timmy pulled me up because we didn't have any money. We weren't making any money. He's like, man, you should be doing this on the street where there's these professional street theatre artists, you know, and they've got these like proper pitch. So not like the kind of corner where someone's just got their hat out with playing the guitar and stuff. It's like a proper circle pitch where, you know, you've got a whole bunch of performers waiting for their turn. You rock up twice a day to draw straws, numbers out of a hat to get your get your oh, time yeah, slot. Your yeah, yeah. And then you've got like 45-minute slot to do your show. And it's like a bit that you know, people know tourism know that that's where street theatre happens mm-hmm. on in circles, circle theatre sort of shows. Um and I was so scared shitless of doing it. Like it was because I didn't come from this, you know, I'd see proper professional street theatre artists hold an audience for yeah, a yeah. half an hour. You know, were really funny, really witty, really fast off the bat, just had this sort of character and this wit about them that I found super intimidating because, like, I'm just coming from this punk, barefoot, yeah. bloody, like, fire spinning, hippie in the forest kind of concept of just thinking, you know, it's great, I'm <laughs> really good at it because I can make it look pretty, but as far as making you laugh and if somebody heck, someone heckles me, like, I, I don't know what to say to yeah. them, like, I'm not going to be able to, and then convince everybody to give me money at the end of the thing, I don't have a, much more than just a bunch of equipment I can set on fire, you know. So it took a while for me to actually get... On that pitch, I, I remember the first time I tried it, I tried it underneath a tree sort of near the pitch, mm-hmm. <laughs> near Lides of Plan. Um, and I basically just scared people. Like I didn't have any music. I just had my fire equipment, my hat out the front, and I was just playing with fire, you know, where I was really weird because usually it's fire <laughs> dancing, you do it to music. You yeah, know? yeah. So I'm doing it to nothing and I'm making these small explosions and fire breathing and juggling stuff and doing this really cool crazy stuff and people were comfortable to see from a distance if they were comfortable and maybe they'd come in. I think I made six euro the first time I did it. Um, And it was like, oh, God, I really need to get my head together with this. I need musicians. I need to do it properly. Mm. And then 
slowly but surely I had, um, yeah, these young crew that sort of hooked me up with drummers in other hostels and this um, Barcelonian dude, Javier, yeah, he's rocked up with his, with his djembe. He's like, okay, we go to the proper circle, right? Like, we, we're going to do it here. We make good money here. And I was like, oh, I don't know. He's like, it's okay. We said, we're going to do it, you know? So he just sort of forced me into yeah. it, which is what I needed. And then I realised once once I started setting up my equipment, I had the drummers, I, I, I met Alan Dargan, who's this famous Indigenous uh, didgeridoo player who was doing tours around the place and worked with Wild Marmalade and all this other stuff, and they all just came and joined me in this space. It wasn't about cracking jokes and being like the, the, the fast, witty guy for getting heckled. It was actually this different type of street theatre that no one had seen in the area. And I got really big audiences and it took like a couple of months to get my head around that. But by the end of that season, I realised street theatre is the way for me because it's not the acting industry, you know. I choose my own hours. Yeah, I can, yeah. I, I've got a Dutch passport and an Australian passport. I can go anywhere I want you and do I can you just when you want. set up the way I do. It's the most honest dollar I could work out of making, you know, because yeah. somebody's going to stop watch me for half an hour and at the end come up and put money in my hat because they enjoy what they see and I've, I've kicked it, you know, I've, I've done so it. So that made you a street theatre artist. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, you know, when you look back at all the things that happened, all the things that you ever wanted to do yeah. and in the end you do them. Yeah. But you do them all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, isn't it? When you think about it, like really when you cool. hear the whole story about where it all started and how it all happened, and you end up in Amsterdam of all places where you were born. Yeah, and yeah. actually then find the true meaning of you, it's yeah. the true meaning of what you do. Yeah, it's it pretty spinny, isn't it? Yeah, really magical, like unraveling of the first couple of decades of my life to get to a point where. I just knew that even if that wasn't what I chose to do in my life, I had I had a way to be part of the working force of the world mm. and I could feel good about myself because I was producing... You're contributing. ...an honest dollar for myself yep. and I was doing doing really great things for a community. Like people would walk away really happy, you know. There's families that would come up and say the most nicest things, you know, I got to meet and perform with some of the most amazing performers all around the world, this, you know, the street theatre community and that type of sort of sideshow kind of crazy theatrical peep that they are the most colourful. It's like the most, 21st circus of the 21st century. They do naughty really well. They yeah. do bloody, like crazy really well. They're all so smart and so entertaining, so colourful and anything goes, you know. So who's the most famous person that's watched you do street theatre? Oh, that's watched watched me do street theatre. Um, well, that you've met during street theatre. I met um, uh, what's his name from uh, the Monty Python from um, John Cleese. Not John Cleese, the waiter um, Manuel. Yeah, yeah. In Barcelona, he came up to me after a show, and he was like. Yes, I am Manuel. <laughs> I was like, what? No way. But it was really weird because when you're getting a hat full of money, you've got to kind of give people energy. He's come up and saying, oh, my, oh where, where, where's that going? He's like, <laughs> money or whatever. Um, but one of the – I'd say probably the most famous person that I've ever done a show for would be um, – uh, what's his name? Wolverine, but he um, Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Yeah, oh, really? I did a show for his surprise thirtieth birthday party in um, Byron Bay. Like, oh wow! A long time ago. That was, yeah, yeah. That was actually before. I think it was before I left to go overseas. Um, God, there's a whole bunch of heaps. There's heaps of people that I've met and done stuff with, like in in that world. It's like so. It'd be remiss of me to not ask you about this, right? You're now engaged. I am now, yeah. 
How did you do it? Where'd you meet? Where'd you meet the future missus? I met her on stage. Oh, did you? Yeah. What did she do? She is an amazing singer songwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like she's just got the voice of a lioness. Oh wow! She's she's epic, but she's also. She's a super. She's just stunning, you know. She's six foot two of absolute just gorgeousness. Yeah. Um, and she um, she also does like she can do this fire manipulation stuff with um, uh, fire eating. It's like this whole different form of fire yeah. manipulation, which you use like a special type of fuel, and you can make these special vapes and do body burning and all this other jazz. And um, and she worked with um, Space Cowboy and his whole his whole team. Yeah. Um, and they were doing – I had met her at an Adelaide Fringe a few years prior to that just very briefly and we both had partners at the time and I remember meeting her. She wanted to learn a bit more about fire eating and stuff and I was – and my girlfriend at the time introduced me to her and she's just rocked up in this like <laughs> superwoman fucking outfit and I'm just like <laughs> gobsmacked by this most beautiful woman that like was really into what I was doing, yeah, wanted yeah. to hang out and do these lessons and I was like – it's so dangerous. Like, I don't know what to say or do. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um, but then we didn't really connect that much that time around. And then um, going to Woodford's always been a bit of a theme in my life, which is the most amazing place to be that time of year, mm-hmm. especially when you're a bit of an artist and stuff. And even if you're not, it's just you're, just mar- you're marinating yeah. in creativity mm-hmm. and just the most amazing. Everything, like every form of entertainment there, it doesn't matter what type of walk of life you are, you'll find something at that festival. <clears throat> and there's some magic that happens there. It's just something else. It's only, can't really describe it in words. You just got to go if you haven't gone. Go check yep. it out. Um, but either ways, I was going there anyhow, um, sort of as a VIP. Some really good friends of mine run the festival and I'm very lucky every year. Normally I get like this music appreciation pass where I get to go yeah, and, yeah. you know, spend some time with some good friends that, that spend a long time building the festival and then they get the week off inside but he contacted me prior to going to that one he's like look we've got your really great campsite because it's a really great spot for you it's going to be great you know having you in as my guest and stuff but I'd really love for you to get involved and maybe you could offer you know Space Cowboy and these guys you're like to go and do something on stage because they had a big production happening on one of the biggest stages I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I contacted them, let them know, look, I'm, I'm available just to come do something. I've always wanted to work with them anyway. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, don't have to worry about paying me. It's all good. I'm like, oh, we'll have to pay you. But anyway, they gave me some small explosives and, you know, one of Shane's famous vests or something. Which is really <laughs> cool. But they're like, we've got an act in our show. And it was a really great show that they did. Um, it was Nino or something. Um, but it was um, basically when Shane Space Cowboy, I don't know if you've heard the Space Cowboy. Yeah. So he created one of the... Um, <clears throat> Uh, was it the um, kinetic kinetic electricity things? You know, when they stand in these things and yeah, you know, yeah. lightning bolts can come out of the fingers and all this other stuff where you can just do that in his boxer shorts and do the sword swallowing things, lightning bolts coming out of it as a finale for the show. Wow. It was really super awesome. And then yeah. we had another guy in the in the show who did the world's smallest backflip on a motorbike. He could do it like within a sort of five-metre space. Oh, just Jesus. like this little jump like this and just basically stands right next to it on his bike. Meh. <laughs> and just does backflip like just right there and stops pretty much. It's really cool. Proper big size motorcycle and everything. Um, and some other really crazy cats from all over the world that came and did some pretty cool stuff. And Phoebe, who was invited to sing I Put a Spell on You, and then she does this routine on a nail bed and she does this thing on a bed of nails. And 
um, they asked for me to join her in that routine and I came in and she sung, I put a spell on you to me and I walk in like I'm on a spell, laid her down on a bed of nails and did a body burning routine on her and then do this fire dance for her and then she's, and then we both walk off stage and so it was a really beautiful experience. She had a partner too at the time and I think I did too also at that point but it was just set in stone basically after that it was kind of it was only a matter of time Pretty cool when you light her on fire you're now mine baby yeah it was yeah and she did she put a spell on me it was a thing it was like oh god and did you get down on one knee to ask her to marry her i did yeah but that wasn't till maybe four or five months later after because we 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 went our separate ways after that first we didn't actually hook up then um but we both were sort of working at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. It was only a few months later, yeah. and um, and we spent most of that festival like just kind of hand in hand, pretty much, just kind of really enjoying each other's company. And then it was shortly after that when it was kind of like we well, you, you have to leave Melbourne and come up here and just yeah. live with me and we just do this. And and then we drove to I think we drove to Darwin first. No, we didn't. No, I <clears throat> I remember actually we did I did a gig at the casino here. With with Space Cowboy and with another very good team, Fiesta Fire Creations, a team of girls on the Gold Coast, they do these amazing shows and stuff. We did a show with um, Regurgitator, which was really cool, and then we were leaving there and we went to go camp down at Wooyoung and have my coaster bus and I just realised that she was the one, you know. Yep. It was just like... Clicked in your head. This is it. This is definitely, like, there's no way I'm ever going to find anybody that mm. can put up with my shit as much as you do. Yeah, yeah. You know, all of our demons met each other and got along like a house on fire. It was amazing. So I was like, all right, I'm pulled in to get some fuel or something and I bought a pack of Burger Rings and just went in with the Burger Ah, uh, he's on the Burger Ring. Yeah. And then I proposed to her every day after that until the Burger Ring packet left and finished. Oh, <laughs> God, I love you. Yeah, but um, I didn't actually get her a proper ring until like six months later or something, which is fine. Mate, the Burger Ring's a proper ring. Yeah. It's all that matters. That many of them. Too. Man, I could sit and talk to you all day. This has been awesome. I've really, I know, it feels like we've only just started. I've really, <laughs> I really like, it's been great. And one of the things I always finish my podcast with a quick fire questions, no pun intended. No worries, fine. What's your greatest achievement in life? My greatest achievement in life is um, probably deciding to travel through the centre of this country and work with the oldest and most powerful human beings that have ever existed on this planet. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Working with Aboriginal people has been the the coolest choice I ever made, I think. Who are the person or the people who have had the biggest influence on your life? Oh, um, it's a tricky one there's so many. Um, I've definitely got to say Michael Jackson and David Bowie was a pretty big yeah, one. Yeah. They, they sort of set the trend for me. But um, Bruce Lee was a pretty big one for me when I was younger. Um, <clears throat> uh, oh, it's just the list just goes on. There's so many. It would be hard to, to say. Favourite food? Um, my mother's food, probably. The Italian um, food. Yeah, Italian food. <laughs> anything that's um, anything that I've, that my family makes is definitely favorite great. song. Oh, jeez, that's, that's a big one. Um, I've got playlists of favorite songs. I'd say, um, oh god, it changes all the time. But at the moment, um, what's my favorite song at the moment? It's um, it's called um, Orbisi Junction by Kuroko. Favourite place in the world? The Garden of Eden. What's next for Stevie? Um, I am going to uh, try and see if I can think of all the things that I missed out on telling you about. But um, 
going back to um, I'm actually going to Hamilton Island this weekend to do nice. a big show with these girls, which is cool. And then, um, yeah, just continuing to create a utopia in Caramon Valley. Love it. Yeah. So Steve-O, Extremo or Stevie, <laughs> Steve, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you it and I really appreciate it. And, mate, as far as I'm concerned, you're an awesome human. Well, Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. No worries it's at all. It's awesome of you to have me. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, mate. What an amazing human. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the Podfire podcasts and I really hope that you enjoyed Awesome Humans. Reach out to us on Podfire and all the social media channels as well as BJ Macker uh, to reach out to me personally. Have a great day.